I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Well, I'm sure it's not lost on anybody that uh, this time of year, Purim, marks the beginning of people becoming knowledgeable about the virus and about its uh, being widespread and beginning to affect the entire world. And because Purim is a holiday that says, that teaches us there are no coincidences, and that is one of its major themes. So we have to assume that there's no coincidence that Purim and this virus, the pandemic, Purim and the pandemic seem to be somehow connected in some way. For me, it was the last time that I saw my kids who live in the States. They all came in for Purim last year. And since then, a year later, I haven't seen them. Um, Thank God I have kids in Toronto. Otherwise, I really understand how people in Toronto without kids here are suffering. And um, it's just, like I said, interesting. So the question is, you know, what do Purim and the pandemic have in common? What are the interconnected themes there? And of course, we don't have to look far to know that one of them is masking, right? We've been masking. We've been masking ever since the time that basically Purim was last year. And of course, we were told that there's all kinds of benefits to masking and masking will save our lives. And wearing a mask on Purim also has tremendous uh, messages on a spiritual level and meaning for us about this time period. So we, so to speak, can take off our masks from the pandemic and put on our masks for Purim. And uh, I don't think you need to wear both. So one or the other, okay? (laughs) The other thing that I think uh, is in common between Purim and the pandemic is that we basically have no clue or have had no clue for, for all of this year about what's really going on, right? What's really true, what's really false, all kinds of misinformation, One of the feelings that people have more than any other feeling is the feeling of a lack of control, a sense of helplessness, a feeling that, you know, nobody seems to know anything because, you know, we hear this and then we hear something contrary to it. And even now with the vaccine, you know, there are still contrary reports surrounding the vaccine and you know just because I got it doesn't mean I can't mask and just because I got it doesn't mean I can't I can be with people and so you know just like the Purim story where the Jewish people really didn't know what was going on and 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 felt in a sense very out of control um this is sort of what we've been experiencing this, this whole year since last Purim you know we don't know what's around the corner And um, so there's a lot of, like I said, interesting parallels between the Megillah, the time of Purim, and what we're going through right now. So I want to talk to you today about some of the connections between, well, just some of the themes, the underlying themes of Purim, uh, ideas of of Purim, and and we can ourselves draw the uh, parallel between this and what we've been living through right now. Okay, so first off, I want to say, and I mentioned this last week, that interestingly, when Purim is a holiday that not only is relevant to, of course, today, the present, which is what we've just been talking about, but but is a holiday that we're told is going to continue into the future. Okay, the Rambam, Rambam, Maimonides in Hilchus Megillah chapter two basically says, that in the future times, after the Mashiach comes, we will have no more Pesach. Yay, liberation! No, we'll be liberated from the kitchen, right? We'll have no more Shavuos, we'll have no more Sukkot, but we will always celebrate the holiday of Purim. And the question, of course, is why? What is it about this holiday? Um, it says, the memory of the miracle of Purim will never be forgotten from the children of Kal Yisrael. Even if in the future, all of Nach, 
All of the Navi, all of the prophets will be forgotten, all of those stories. Megillus Esther will still remain. So we know in terms of uh, this holiday that listening to this Megillah is a obligation, right? We have a lot of Megillahs. We have Megillah Ruth. We have what we call Shir Hashirim, the Holy of Holies that are read on different holidays. But with no other Megillah, are we literally obligated, not just the men, but men, women, and children to go and hear the Megillah read, right? If you missed the Megillah, Megillah Ruth on Shavuos, it would have been nice to hear it, but you didn't do anything wrong. But here we have a mitzvah to go and hear this Megillah. And not only that, but in Hilhot Megillah, which is an entire tractate devoted to the laws of hearing the Megillah, we're told that you can't miss a word. Otherwise, you didn't do the mitzvah, right? And that's why we keep the kids really busy with nash and big bags of stuff. So they'll hopefully be quiet and we can hear every single word, okay? Also, um, other laws that pertain to this, believe it or not, that if you were a Kohen in a, in, and doing your service in the temple, when the time came to hear the Megillah, you literally stopped and ran out and went to hear the Megillah. Another law reg regarding listening to the Megillah is that somebody who is sitting and learning Torah is required to stop learning to go and hear the Megillah. Now, this is really huge because there's a lot of questions in the Gemara that ask, you know, when are you allowed to interrupt your learning? What are you allowed to interrupt your learning for? They even have a case of somebody drowning. And they ask the question, are you allowed to get up from your learning of Torah, which is keeping the world spinning around according to Jewish uh, philosophy that Torah learning is what keeps the world uh, alive? Are you allowed to get up and go and save somebody who's drowning? So the fact that that question is even asked lets you know how incredibly important it is that a Torah, Torah if you're sitting and learning, you get up and you go and hear the Megillah. So what is it about this Megillah that is so important for us to hear? So again, it's one of the reasons given is that the lessons of this Megillah are so crucial, not only connecting us to the past and the present and relevant to the present, but somehow still relevant in future times. Okay, so the, first, the next question I want to ask is, where does the holiday of Purim come from? There is no mention in the written Torah, in the five books of Moses, as there are in for other holidays. Thou shalt celebrate the holiday of Purim. Thou shalt, you know, hear the Megillah. You should bring uh, presents, you know, presents, gifts of food to your friends. This is not a Torah holiday. This holiday of Purim was established by the rabbis, together with Hanukkah, by the way, okay? It came after. And, um, but with everything, we always say that there's always an illusion. There was an illusion to this holiday of Purim within the Torah. And the rabbis asked the question, the Gemara asks, you know, where do we see a hint to Esther in the Torah? For those of you who remember a class I gave a couple of weeks ago, we said, where is there a hint to Haman in the Torah? And we saw that it, in, in the story of the Garden of Eden, it says, Hamin Ha'etz, God asked, did you eat from the tree? And the word Hamin can be re-spelled with re-vowelized to say Haman. So they asked the same question, where do we see a hint to Esther in the Torah? And there's a line in the Torah that says, Ani hastir aster by Yom Hazeh. God says, I will surely hide my face, and I, Hashem, will surely hide my face on that day. And this is a quote from Devarim, Deuteronomy, the last book in the Chumash, uh, chapter 31, verse 18. He says, and I, Hashem, will surely hide my face on that day for all the evil which they have done. And the they is referring to the Jewish people. Okay, so one question, what evil had we done that God decides to hide his face from us? And what does God hiding his face mean? What does that, what are the ramifications of that? 
So when we talk about on that day, we're referring to the day, the time period that the Jewish people are sent into exile. Now, this is the first exile. This is after the destruction of the first temple. This is the, you know, famous song by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the time. By the way, he was the grandfather of Vashti in our Purim story. Okay. He is the one who destroys the first Beit HaMikdash. And for the first time, we leave our land since we've arrived, you know, with Yehoshua back. And what's the sin that the Jewish people were, were that, that, that caused this? The Jewish people had sinned repeatedly, worshiping foreign gods, and corruption was rampant. They've been warned repeatedly by the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, to change their ways and stop worshiping idols and committing other sins, right? We said the first based on Mikdash was actually destroyed because of the three cardinal sins, murder, idolatry, and adultery. So the Jewish people were at a very low place, even though the Beit HaMikdash that was in their midst was a place full of miracles, open miracles. Okay. And eventually Hashem had no choice but to exile the Jewish people from their land. Because the land, as we said in other classes, the land, our being in the land is dependent on our behavior. A holy land requires a holy people. And so therefore, not just this once, but throughout history, whenever we are misbehaving, we are spewed, vomited is the word used, right? Out of the land. Okay. So this is where we meet Hashem now in the Purim story, or shall I say we don't meet him? Because we really don't meet him directly at all in the Megillah story. It's well known, I'm sure you've all heard, that Hashem's name does not appear in the Megillah. However, it's important to know that when you're listening to it being read, wherever the word Hamelech is used, the king, without being followed by the name Achashverosh, there's always a double entendre. It's also the Hamelech is always referring to God as well, right? So, for example, when it says the king could not sleep, and it's talking about Achashverosh having a night where he's tossing and turning, and it uses the word Hamelech. It's saying that God himself, so to speak, could not sleep because of the impending doom that was upon his nation. Okay, so as you listen to the Megillah, you should keep that in mind. So this is intentional that Hashem's uh, name is missing from the Megillah. Now, one of the reasons is just historical, and I think it's really interesting. The Ibn Ezra says that Mordechai and Esther, as you know, are the ones who wrote the Megillah. They were both prophets and realized that after the Megillah story is over, even though everybody's happy and joyful that we weren't killed, the Jews continued to live under Persian rule for many years afterwards. Esther is still married to the king. And so they could not write openly about God and the miracles that happened in the Megillah. Because what would happen is the Persians would have insisted that together in the story, they would have listed other Persian gods and made Hashem just another one of those gods. So there was a very a practical reason for why the story was written without God's name, you know, um, clearly in there. Okay. Also, we have to realize the Megillah is not a history book. We're told that if you want to read about the history of this time, you can go and read the Chronicles of Persia and Media for that, which was written by the non-Jewish historians of the day, right? The Megillah obviously was written through Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, and therefore every word, every letter, just like the Torah, it has layers and layers of meaning for us. Now, the reason that we have to hear every word and that it, there's so, we're so careful 
that we read the Megillah and listen to it and hear it is because the story of Purim is written in and showing us that over a period of nine years, which is when the story took place, while it was happening, nobody necessarily saw God's hand in it. They were just one event after the other, many of which seemed to be just coincidental. And it was only with hindsight, you know, we talk about that a lot with this pandemic, right? 2020. It was only looking back with hindsight that they were able to connect the dots and recognize that God was taking care of them all the way through, that there was reason and purpose for everything that happened and how it happened. And perhaps I'd like to say that in the future, when we look back at this pandemic, let's hope that we'll be in a situation and the whole world will be where we'll somehow be able to connect the dots and see the reasons and the purpose that we had to go through this in order to be able to bring the world to a better place and to the place that all of mankind is hoping and waiting for. Okay, so one of the main messages of Purim is the danger when a person sees life and his own life as random as haphazard, as purposeless, and seeing everything that happens as simply a coincidence. A nice quote that I, that I think is brilliant says that, what are coincidences? Coincidences are God's way of doing miracles anonymously. Coincidences are God's ways of doing miracles anonymously. We as Jews, we don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe that anything happens without God's providence, without God's wish, wishes to allow it to happen, and in other cases, to make it happen. Okay? And when we see things as coincidence, what we're doing is really embracing a very evil philosophy. It's the philosophy of Amalek, our arch enemy. Amalek is the force in the world that says everything is chance. That mocks and is the cynic within each one of us when it comes to the idea of a higher reality or that there's a spiritual reality that we don't see and that we don't understand. It's the cynic. And Amalek, we're told at the end of days, that philosophy, that evil philosophy that says it's all random, will be obliterated together with the people who believe that and believe it right to the end. Even when, you know, there are miracles that are happening in front of them, they will find a way to mock or undermine them and make other people laugh in a mocking type of way, okay? The story of the, the holiday Purim, Purim means a lottery, right? So it, it, it describes the, this, this, this philosophy that, you know, you win or you lose, and it's all luck. There's nothing else but luck and randomness. And we, we um, recoil against this philosophy because, philosophy because, number one, we Jews believe in free will. We believe in Bechira, that a human being has choice. And what happens is basically that when God hides, it's not that he's not there, but by hiding, he makes it possible for us to be able to choose. If God was so open and apparent our ability to choose freely would be hampered, right? If every time a righteous person did something properly or they were righteous and, and their food fell from the sky as it did for the Jews in the desert and poor people, you know, were uh, people who were wicked, I'm sorry, were living in poverty, there wouldn't be any choice. We'd know, hey, why would I want to 
be wicked. I mean, obviously I want the goods, right? Or, you know, if, if like I say, if we found our bank accounts all of a sudden full because we're righteous and we did a mitzvah and we're doing the right thing and it empties every time we do something wrong, there wouldn't be that freedom to choose. So by God hiding, he gives us the opportunity to choose. And he gives us the opportunity to decide for ourselves whether we chalk things up to chance, and this is the real choice, or whether we recognize that Hashem is involved in everything in our lives. Not only do we see Hashem behind the events in history, but in our own personal lives, we recognize that God is completely involved. I just want to show you, interesting, the word vayikra means it happened, or a coincidence in Hebrew, I don't know if you can see it, is the word mikra, mem, kuf, resh, hey. So if you rearrange the letters of the word mikra, which means to happen, you get the words rak me Hashem, right? Resh, kuf, mem, hey. So that's the choice. You can either see things as mikra, as Amalek did, it just happens. By the way, I just heard that the word happy in English actually connotes the idea of it just happened. In other words, you know, the secular or non-religious idea of happiness is, yeah, you're happy sometimes, you're not happy sometimes. It all depends on what happens. As opposed to the Jewish word for happiness, which is simcha, right? Which the same words for besimcha, to be in joy and happiness, are the same letters of the word machshava, that it's dependent on your thoughts, okay? Or I just heard Rabbi Rieti say, simcha are the words sham moach, right? That, uh, that, you know, your mind, that put it in your mind, that's how you're happy. So it's not just about what happens. And even in English, people joke that the word coincidence should really be read as a ka-incident, a yud-k, yud-hey, right? A ka-incident, that there's no such thing as coincidence. It's a God-incident. Right? God made it happen. And this is the lesson that Purim teaches us. And we have to read the Megillah carefully. We're told not to skip over one word because to really notice the miracles in the Megillah, we have to recognize that they're rooted in the everyday occurrences. We have to learn the lesson of the miracles and integrate them into our lives. I just wanna say one interesting thing. I, I gave a class on this, I think last forum, but it's so interesting that, you know, we're told in the Torah about Yisro. Who was Yisro? He was Moshe's father-in-law. And we're told that Yisrael comes and joins the Jewish people. He converts to Judaism. And what makes him come, the Torah tells us, he comes because he sees and hears about the miracle of the Jewish people leaving Egypt and God splitting the sea for, for them. Now, the whole world at that time knew this fact. But the other reason that Yisrael comes and joins the Jewish people is because of the war with Amalek. So the rabbis asked, well, what, what is, what, why did that make him come? That these people started up with us after we left Egypt and fought with us and tried to destroy us. So what Yisrael learned from this is two things. Number one, he learned that miracles come and go. And human nature is that, you know, we get excited, we get inspired. We see something that says to us, oh my goodness, is it odd or is it God? There must be a God in the world, right? Whether it's a tremendous coincidence in your life. But then we cool down. It doesn't last. It takes a couple of weeks, maybe a month, maybe a year, but it doesn't last. And he saw the war with Amalek made him realize that you can have this tremendous arousal, but then what happens after it is you just go back to normal. And you could go back to, to so normal that you could become Amalek, that you could totally forget the impression that this miracle or this occurrence made on you in the entire world at the time. And so Yisro understood he had to act. He had to do something with his inspiration. Otherwise, it would fade away. 
And this is just a lesson for all of us. And women, especially, women tend to get very inspired easily, right? They go to a sheer, something happens, they come home excitedly, they tell their husband, they're very upset. Why isn't he as excited as they are? Why isn't he as passionate as they are? What's going on? Doesn't he get it? You know, we have to move to Israel. We have to, you know, whatever it is, right? But we're human. And unless we put it into something real, it doesn't last. And that's what the Megillah is telling us. And that's what Yisro taught everybody. And again, even with the Purim story, even God, God was hidden. There were not open miracles. We have to do the work of finding him in the everyday occurrences. And that's the way we really flex our muscles. Okay. So the righteous see God in everything. In the smallest things, they see God. There's a story of a righteous man who's pondering a leaf that falls to the ground. And he says to the leaf, you know, why did you fall? And the leaf replies, well, I'm not my own master. It was the branch that shook me. And of course, he then, the righteous person asked the branch, why did, why did it shake? And the branch answers, that it too didn't make the decision, rather a strong gust of wind blew against the tree and uh, made the branch shake and the leaf to fall. So now the man asked the wind why it blew and the wind answers that an angel told it to blow. The angel when questioned says, Hashem commanded me um, to, inst uh, to instruct the wind to blow. So when the righteous man finally asks Hashem for an explanation, this is what Hashem answers. He answers that a little worm was lying on the ground, suffering from the heat of the midday sun. He thus instructed the angel to tell the wind to blow so that the branch would shake and the leaf would fall, covering the worm to protect it from the sun. So, of course, the message in the story is that nothing, no matter how small, happens unless Hashem wants it to happen. And, of course, this is the extreme opposite philosophy of Amalek, of Haman, of our persecutors, and those who attempt to destroy the Jewish people in every single generation. Okay. So a little bit about the Jewish people at this time, at Purim time. You know, the Jewish people, because of the exile and because of the way things were before they were exiled, felt that God had totally abandoned them. They felt that they were no longer, so to speak, God's chosen people. They felt that they had destroyed the relationship between themselves and God. They were demoralized. They felt hopeless. And they certainly were not... Uh, believing that they had any kind of mission or purpose in this world anymore. You know, they had blown it, shall we say. And they'd never been in exile before, so they would, had never experienced this. And another thing that had changed for them, which we can't really understand, but this was the time, same time period, which was the end of prophecy. It was the end of God being very open and reveal. As I said, they were privy to open miracles. Not only were there prophets, thousands and thousands of them, right, who spoke to God, who had, well, not really spoke, but, you know, who had um, um, visions from God and would tell the people what was expected of them from God. But they also literally themselves, if you went into the Beit HaMikdash, right, there was fires that burned without having to be relit. The showbread, the bread that sat, that sat in the Beit HaMikdash were told from one week to the other that was sitting there open, stayed as fresh as it was on the very first day. There were all kinds of miracles, right? No pregnant woman ever miscarried. There were things that were just part of life, and it was natural to them it, they were used to it on the other hand it also revealed that God was very open and there so the question of course is how can you sin when it's so apparent that God is there 
But we know that people get used to everything. And again, even with God being there, we still had the ability to choose. We were different. It was on a higher level, but we still had the ability to fail, to go after. There's a story in the Gemara of, uh, where they're discussing, you know, how could it be that the Jews could worship idols in such in this time period when God was so open? And there's a great rabbi in that those time periods in that time period that said, "Don't be so haughty, because if you had lived in those times, you would have picked up the the skirt of your robe and ran to the closest idol worship." Okay, the closest to Vodazora that we did we don't understand the incredible pull towards that, the spiritual Yetzirhara, the spiritual pull towards something that didn't demand from us, so to speak, that God demanded, right? It's like when Jews go towards other spiritual practices because they're not demanding from them as much as the Torah might demand or they might think that the Torah demands. So they seek a different spiritual channel. And that's what it was like then too. But anyway, the point is, is the Megillah opens up and reveals to us where the Jewish people were in terms of their relationship with God. A lot of people don't realize the opening party in the Megillah is a party that is celebrating the destruction of the Jewish temple, the destruction of the Jewish people and their greatness and their might. And you would think this is bad, it would be bad enough, but the Jewish people go and attend this party. At the beginning of the Megillah, you'll notice they, they describe the opulence of the party, and you'll see the letter Chet is enlarged. It's bigger than the other letters. And whenever a letter is enlarged, it's teaching us something. So the letter Chet equals the number eight. And it's telling us that not only did Achashverosh at this party that lasted 180 days, every day bring out six of the treasures from the Beit HaMikdash that was, were now in his possession because he had plundered and, and gotten all of these treasures. But the Chet stands for the fact that he would come out wearing the clothing, the eight different clothing of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest of the Jews, these beautiful clothing. So you can imagine the Jews were at this party that was celebrating their destruction and where the, the prophet Jeremiah had said that in 70 years, the Jews are going to go back to Israel and rebuild their temple. And Ahasuerus was celebrating the fact, unfortunately, he had miscalculated, right, that the 70 years had passed, that the prophecy had not come true. And that that and now that meant, so to speak, right, that I am the ruler of the universe and not the Jews and their God. I have replaced their God. And this is the party that Mordechai told them, don't go to the party. Don't go to this party. But they went and they ate and they drank and they enjoyed themselves. This is how far gone they were and lost from their purpose. Now, there, was, uh, there is historically, too, the idea that before this party, Cyrus in Yerushalayim had invited the Jews to come back from Persia and begin to rebuild their second temple. And the, Torah the history tells us that very few Jews listened to the call, that 24,000 Jews went back, but the rest all stayed in Persia. They were happy there. They were more Persian than the Persians. They were rising high in society as we do. And they'd lost their purpose. So much so, again, that they've gone to this party. Okay. <clears throat> hey, the next source that I want to bring out is explaining the different relationship Shem had with us before the exile and that he has with us now that we are in exile. Again, we said that God was very open very revealed. And now God is very hidden. He's masked. He's hiding behind a mask. Okay. In Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim in chapter two, it's Pasuk nine, it says, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young heart. Now, of course, the Shir Hashirim 
is an allegory of the love between God and the Jewish people. It's written as if it's between a husband and wife. God is often compared to the husband and the Jewish people to the wife, to the kala. And this is referring to this relationship. It says, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks in through the window and he peers through the lattice. Okay. So it's talking about God and it's showing what he was like before the exile and how he is now in terms of his relationship with us up until today. Okay. Before exile, God's looking through the window. What is this telling us? Not only can God see us, but we can see God. We can see him clearly. But now, after exile, he's peering us, peering at us like, you know, if you open the blinds a little bit and you just look out through one of the cracks of the blind. So now, of course, he sees us, but we don't really see him. Very difficult for him to see us. He's still watching us, but we can't see him clearly. The Gemara and Chagiga, however, says, when God hides his face, it's only his face that he hides, but not his hand. His hand represents the idea that even though he's distancing himself from us, right? It was a time called Hester punning from the word Esther, a concealment of God's face. And even though he hid his face, however, his hand was still outstretched to protect us. <clears throat> so there's a parable that the Vilna Gaon tells. He it says it's a parable of a prince who's banished from, his, from the palace by his father just like we were banished from the temple. But the king all the time is sending his servants, right, to rescue the prince because the prince is always getting into trouble. Either bandits are coming upon him in the woods or there's wild wolves that are about to attack him. And the king is always sending servants to make sure he, they'll be there to be able to rescue him. One day the prince has an aha moment and he realizes I mean, it's unbelievable how I've survived everything. You know, it's unbelievable that I'm still here. And he obviously begins to realize that it's only because his father, the king, has been sending these servants of his to rescue him over and over and over again. So this is the same analogy to what it is like to be in exile, right? Yes, we're distanced from our father. But the king doesn't forget about us. And even if his face is hidden, his hand is outstretched. He's always watching and he's always looking to make sure that his people are protected and that his people will continue on and on and on. <clears throat> so when the prince realizes this, that his father's been taking care of him, <clears throat> he wishes to return. And of course, he does tshuva. He wants to return the love that he feels for his father, the king, when he recognizes how his father's never really left him. His father's been taking care of him, even though it was so difficult to be able to see it clearly. <clears throat> so this is one of the messages for us, right? That the more we see Hashem, even when he's concealed behind the everyday, behind the ordinary, the more we look for him in the, what we call hashkacha pratit, the divine providence, not only in terms of the Jewish people throughout history, but in terms of our own lives, even more so. <clears throat> when we look back at our lives and we connect the dots and we see how a turn this way would have changed everything or a choice made like that would have changed our destiny, perhaps, in big ways or little ways then what we're doing is we're revealing God behind the mask. We're revealing God in the everyday ordinary. And that's one of the greatest messages that we're meant to learn 
about the holiday of Purim. Now, of course, on Purim, it's a custom for us to wear masks. And it's symbolic of this, this time period of Hester punning, of being in exile, of God's face being hidden. But Purim is the day that we reveal Hashem. Purim is the day when we reveal Hashem and let the world know and ourselves know, know that though God is, seems to be hiding behind nature, behind the everyday occurrences, he's there and he wants us to find him. Right? We know the story, the famous story has been brought down by so, about so many different rabbis, but I'll say the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when he was a little kid, he was playing hide and seek with his friends. And he found a very good hiding place. And it was such a good hiding place that his friends stopped looking for him. I think they wrote this up in a Franklin book too. I read my kids when they, when they were little. Right? Franklin hid so well that everybody went home. It was getting dark. And they said, we give up. <clears throat> well, the story with the Rebbe is he came home and his, you know, he was crying. And his mother asked, why are you crying? And he said, you know, I was hiding and hiding and, and nobody came to look for me. Nobody looked for me. So we say this is an analogy to Hashem himself. That yes, it's true, Hashem is hiding. But he wants us to look for him and he wants us to reveal him. The word Megillat Esther literally means revealing the hidden. The word Esther, which is actually a Persian name, but in Hebrew, obviously, means hide, migilah, gilui, right? When a miracle is open, it's called gilui. So it's revealing what is hidden. That is the strength and the greatness of this day. It's also that when we wear masks, what does a mask do? A mask makes you invisible. And there's a certain power to invisibility, right? When you're invisible, you can do anything. Why can why are superheroes always have the power to be invisible, right? They can do stuff without getting caught. They can do things. So there's a certain power in being invisible. And one of the powers of it is, is that we're less inhibited when we're behind a mask. We're able to express parts of ourselves unabashedly. Sheila will appreciate this, but I know teachers have been saying that there are kids that, be, you know, who have been doing school, not in the classroom for this year, who are actually, you know, thriving because of it, because in class, they're so intimidated by the other kids around them. And they've been able to shine some of them in other ways that they can't in the classroom because they have that invisibility. They have that security, right? the lack of vulnerability. So when we're behind a mask, the idea is that we can get in touch with parts of ourselves and express parts of ourselves that we might not when everybody can see us, right? Obviously, the other idea of being masked is that we dress up, right? Little kids dress up as who they would like to be, right? The boys dress up as Mordechai, the girls dress up as Esther, right? The idea that we can be so much more than who we are. And when we're behind a mask, we recognize how much we limit ourselves and how much more we're capable of. Because again, we have that invisibility that allows us to be free to express more of who we can be. So, very important. Another thing I want to just say, because it's important for people to realize Purim is one of the most powerful days of the year to pray in your own words for what you need. The gates of heaven are open. It's a day when the Jewish people reaccepted the Torah out of love, out of pure, incredible clarity that God, again, though he may be hiding, is there and protecting us and is in the everyday occurrences, all the dots that connected one event after the other in the Purim story over nine years that they were able to look back and say, oh, wow, isn't that incredible, right? Vashti was deposed. 
And the same guy who wants to kill the Jewish people is the same guy who's responsible for Esther becoming the queen, right? It's the same story, right? Moshe, the story of Moshe, right? Uh, sorry, he's raised by the queen's daughter in the palace, Batya, the daughter who rescues him from the Nile, right under the nose of the king who wants to destroy the Jewish people. All of these different things that, that bring us. So why is Adar the happiest month? The reason, one of the reasons about happiness is that all year long, we have a dissonance between the outside and the inside. On Purim, the idea is, is that there's a harmony between what is hidden and what is revealed. That on Purim, we realize that nature and Hashem are one and the same. The opposite of the month of Av is of Adar is Av, Av is exile, Av is pain, Av is disharmony. And you know what? It's much easier to access pain. It's much easier to cry at another person's funeral. It's much easier to relate to other people's disharmony and, and pain. It's much more difficult to be happy for another person's simcha. Okay. It's much more difficult. And Purim is, challenges us, right, to find the joy and find the happiness even in times when we don't know what's going on, when we aren't able to connect the dots. But when we recognize that nature, what's happening, is being orchestrated by a loving God, by a God who wants to bring the world to a better place, and this pandemic, again, being orchestrated, we'll look back and we'll understand, right, what it was all about one day. When we know this, then we can, we can access. Okay, just quickly the end of this, okay? If a person reads the Megillah, it tells us in the Mishnah, out of order, he hasn't fulfilled the mitzvah. If a person reads the Megillah as if there's no order, backwards even, as if it has no relevance, that's this is the message, to his own life, then he's missed the total point of the Megillah. The lesson of the Megillah is that Hashem, though hidden, is involved and yearns for a relationship. He wants us to search for him. He wants us to seek him. The same word for world, olam, is the same word for hiding, he'elam. God created a world and he hides himself behind it in order to give us free will. And we and the major part of that free will is, are we going to search him out or are we going to let him be hidden? Are we going to say it's all happenstance? It's all random. It's coincidence. It has nothing to do with God. Or are we going to say, is this odd or is this God? When things happen in our own lives and when things happen around us. Okay, last idea. There's a Tehillim that we read that we're told Esther wrote. It's chapter 22, and people say this on the day of Purim. Okay, Ayelet HaShachar. And it's talking about, it's a parable, and it's talking about the exile. So what is the exile? What can we compare this exile that we're in right now? What can we compare it to? We compare it to a person who's walking through a very dark forest, right? God is concealed with only a candle to light his way. The candle represents the Torah, which the Jewish people have, which is our secret to survival throughout this long and bitter exile, before and during and after, right? And the person in the forest uses the candle to avoid stumbling, to avoid bumping into trees, to be able to help feel his way through this dark and menacing forest, to be able to stay on the path. But suddenly, the day begins to dawn. The day begins to dawn. The blackest time at night, by the way, is just before the morning star. 
The blackest time is just before the first star, the, 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 the first ray of dawn. So suddenly begins the day, the day to dawn. And this person who's been walking through this forest realizes he doesn't need the candle anymore. And he blows it out. And this is the idea. In future times, we won't need the holiday of Pesach. We won't need to talk about the miracles of leaving Egypt, which helped light the way for us through this long exile. Sitting down with our families around the Seder was a reminder of who we are and where we come from and what our mission is in this world. But we won't need this anymore. Why? Because in future times, the light of godliness will be seven times more powerful than the light of the sun. God will become so much more apparent. Yes, our free will will be more limited because of it. We won't have the same free will that we have now. So now is the time to make choices and to do things to reveal God. Because once he's revealed, it won't be a kunz anymore, okay? When Mashiach comes, the presence of Hashem will again be so open and shine in all its strength and glory that we won't need the candle. We won't need those other holidays. But there's one exception. The special talent that the Jewish people acquired when they worked to see the hand of God's guiding providence, even when his face was concealed, that will remain our eternal possession even after the sun of the redemption will rise. May it happen speedily in our day. Thank you for listening, everybody, and have a wonderful Purim. Purim Sameach. Freilich and Purim. You too. Thank you. Purim Sameach. Feel God in our own lives and the hidden. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Freilich and Purim. Beautiful. Beautiful teaching. Freilich and Purim. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you.